Welcome to the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your host, Mike Drohan. Together, we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Can you remember the last time that despite your best efforts, you totally lost your banana? Where you were so mad that it almost felt like you were being driven by some sort of dark force that refused to be sated until it had run its course. Well, it turns out you actually were, or more specifically, your brain was. A self-professed pracademic and founder of the Mind-Body-Brain Performance Institute, Paul Taylor is on a mission to empower individuals and organizations to become a better version of themselves. One of the ways in which he does this is by explaining in practical terms what's actually going on upstairs when we experience these heavyweight emotions, which we all fall victim to at some time or another. Fear, stress, anger, that overwhelming desire for comfy trackies and canned whipped cream at the end of a particularly stressful day. Maybe that's just me. Paul sets himself apart by being deeply committed to practicing that which he preaches. Hunting submarines and helicopters as a former British Royal Navy aircrew officer, boxing professionally, undergoing rigorous military combat survival and resistance to interrogation training, accruing multiple master's degrees in the pursuit of his total understanding of human behavior and how to wield it for good. We go deep into setting goals that you will actually keep, managing the red rage through simple techniques you can employ today, and the methods which I should employ to avoid mentally scarring my niece's under-11s basketball team, whom I'm coaching this season. All this and more on this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Paul, thank you very much for making the time to hang out with me today and be a part of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Uh, As someone who's obviously doing a lot of different things at any given time, uh, I do really appreciate your time, so thank you for that. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Excellent. We were introduced care of Lisa Tomate, I yeah. believe, the yeah. ultra marathon machine. Freak <laughs> of nature. Um, <laughs> not only it's, it's just it's not only her amazing uh, physical endurance and, and obviously the mental side that comes with it. But I don't know if you've heard her story about her mum. But that is just crazy. Uh, oh, it's mind blowing, right? That that lady yeah. is one special lady. There, there's so many facets of her life which are, are just absolute rabbit holes to to go into. I mean, we we had a podcast planned, we jumped on the podcast, and then we really got cracking on talking about Lisa's time management at the moment, specifically, which is one of my areas of focus professionally. And I've kind of gone on after that to give her a little bit of coaching in kind of managing her workflow and trying to prioritize this myriad things she has going on. Because aside from the multiple multifaceted business she has and the training she does, which is like at a freak level, Mm. she's got almost round the clock care commitments to her mother to rehabilitate her. So it's pretty crazy, right? Far beyond what the average human could ever hope to to manage. Like, I don't know Mm. how she does it. So hopefully we can make things a little bit easier for her just from like a task management viewpoint, just that all important managing of your to-do list. And and we were just talking before Paul about Calendly and these little plugins you can have 
that yeah. make things easier for that small fee, which you feel like, oh, it's not that bad. I, I can pay that. But theoretically, it will do things like make make your scheduling that little bit easier each day. So you don't have to do 20 clicks, you just do one. And I think those sort of like hacks that we've got access to now are really, really valuable, especially for entrepreneurs doing way, way more than they should be. Yeah, <laughs> may, may I tell you what, if I could, if I could pay a, a fee, a monthly fee for a magic wand that would just come in and <laughs> wave away all my admin shit, I would be a very happy chappy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, admin's the killer. And I feel that it is, doesn't matter how uh, amazing someone is at their profession or, and actually it's, I've found that it's almost more so it's the people who are high performers who are struggling the most with admin. Uh, yeah, really, and look, really interesting. I, I had that that conversation uh, with with Lisa, and 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 you know you can look at the different personality profiles, type A, you know, on the MBTI stuff. But for for me, it's really about um, neurotransmitters in the brain. So people who are very high performers and highly driven tend to be very dopaminergic. And, and that's really drives motivation, goal-directed behavior, but it's very future-oriented, right? It's about anticipation. It's about um, uh, the, 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 the actual, um, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? And, and they're not very into the here and now stuff, which is the kind of admin stuff that, that other personality types seem to like. So I would be really interested looking at these personality types and just looking at the dominant neurotransmitter systems in people's brains. Cause I'm, I'm willing to bet that the people like me and Lisa and others who, who are, are, are goal oriented and do not like admin, I suspect it's all to do with um, a dopaminergic drive in the system. That's interesting. This is a whole like, a whole other angle of things I hadn't really thought about because it's what you'll probably find interesting, Paul, is I've sort of tailored the way that I coach these sort of workflow and productivity processes. I've tailored mm -hmm. the way that I'm doing it for Lisa to be much less, um, much more about immediate reward outcomes. Yeah. So there you go. Boom, things, dopamine. Well, yeah, we do less stuff. We focus on less things. We focus on one thing and we make sure we see the return on investment for her mm. as soon as possible. Because if, yeah. if we give her 10 things, it's all too much. It's adding to the challenges and she doesn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. So that's really interesting. There's kind of a psychological uh, reasoning behind that. That's so interesting to, for me to hear. Yeah, um, it's, 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 the, it's the neurobiological driver of the psychological processes yeah. that, that right, really I'm that quite interested. The, the, right, the, the, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the psychology, the psychological stuff, that's the that's the sort of descriptor of the of the doing bit, but it's the drivers in the brain, the neurobiological drivers, the, the neurotransmitter systems, mm -hmm. um, you know, the reward pathways, the motivation pathways all in the brain that actually drive the behaviors. And when you observe people's behaviors, if you're quite skilled, then you can put them into personality types, right? Very interesting stuff. I could go so far down the rabbit hole with this with you, but I'm going to slightly change that. Yeah. It's so, nothing to do with the podcast, but anyway, interesting. <laughs> no, I side. love it though. This is great. It's super relevant to me too. I find it super interesting. So it strikes me, Paul, that we're kind of, we're each taking different paths to explore a similar thing, which obviously interests us both. And that being is being uh, human potential. Mm -hmm. Like I, I've always been super interested in that. I've spent a lot of kind of time 
in, I guess, in like an introspective way, kind of trying to figure out what makes me tick and what gets me interested to pursue things over other things. Uh, and you've kind of gone to the next, next, next level of really understanding, I guess, at the molecular level, where motivation and where potential and pursuing that potential comes from and, and, and I guess, personality traits and all sorts of things that flow from that. So what I'd like to know is what got you interested in this, in the mind, body and brain connection and, and this kind of human potential element? Yeah, well, the, I think the the mind, body, brain connection just came over time, just with my sort of educational journey. So I'd I'd done a a master's degree in in exercise science and exercise physiology and became a, an exercise physiologist, um, but then went and joined the military and and spent eight years um, flying around in helicopters, hunting submarines, doing anti-submarine warfare, all of that fun stuff, and and realized that you know, that that's a young single man's game. So I, <laughs> I, I did a, a, another master's degree in human nutrition um, as part of, well, when I was doing helicopter search and rescue, cause there's a lot of free time and rather than sit and play video games, I thought I'd do something useful. So uh, I studied in nutrition and that for me started connecting things a little bit, you know, as a physiologist, you have a bent on physiology as a nutritionist, you got a bent on nutrition, but then when you got both, you start to see those interconnections. Uh, and so then I moved to Australia, set, set myself up as a physiologist and nutritionist, and then realized after a while, you, you know, I, as you do when you're an enthusiastic health professional, you tend to be, um, you know, very keen on telling people what to do. Ah, I know what your situation is. Here's how you need to do it. <laughs> and some people will do it, but a lot of people don't. And then I realized after a while that 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 understanding human behavior is really critical in this process. So I I went and did uh, another uh, postgrad in neuroscience to try and get my head around that a little bit, and then uh, did a lot of study around um, motivational interviewing, other things like that, and just really dug into the whole human behavior thing, and then realized, wow, there's so much that's going into here. There's genetics, there's epigenetics, there's early life experience. So it's really that journey has just come from being fascinated in the subject from starting off in silos and different silos and then realizing that there are, are very strong connections. And a lot of, uh, when you dig into the academic stuff, because Western science is very Newtonian Cartesian in its worldview. And what I mean by that is that the scientific method is you break things down into its smallest component part in order to try and understand it and, and understand, you know, what are the individual drivers, but we kind of lose the fact that we are a big ecosystem. And so a lot of academics tend to be quite siloed in their, um, in their knowledge and in their approaches. Um, and I decided um, many years ago, just to become a dot connector Um to look at different areas of research and see where it all connects. And, and that's where the whole mind, body, brain idea come, uh, came up. And, and the Mind, Body, Brain Performance Institute was really born about understanding all of the different things that, that influence how we, how we actually um, exist and, and behave and perform as a complex ecosystem. Mm. I can only imagine one of the reasons people might not necessarily have that 
holistic understanding of mind, body, and brain is because of the, you really have to specialize in multiple fields to connect those dots, yeah. right? Like that, that is the point of difference. Your base of knowledge is so diverse, you're able to see the connections between these, let's just call them chains and how they kind of complement or, or otherwise to each other. So mm. a lot of study has been involved, Paul, I imagine. There's been, there's been a lot of study and I'm currently doing my PhD in psychology right? because I yeah. you know, realized um, that that's the kind of missing piece that I want to dive into. Uh, and although I'm familiar with a lot of the concepts, actually doing a, a deep dive into that, um, for me, is, is really quite exciting. You've done and are doing a number of different things, and there's been a really, I would say, sustained growth in your your professional and personal life because of this yourself. I mean, you're kind of the proof mm-hmm. is in the pudding in that you, if you look into the back catalogue of what uh, Paul Taylor's been up to, as you said, you've done everything from chasing submarines to being in uh, rescue services to launching your own businesses, coaching, speaker, all these different things. What do you think is is the main kind of contributing factors? You're almost like the Paul Taylor secret source that's allowed you to kind of get that momentum to do all these things and keep it for such a sustained period. Uh, look, look, for me, it, it really comes down to... Um, intrinsic motivation and and actually one of the the early people on my podcast um was a guy who i've got a bit of a man crush on professor richard ryan <laughs> um mm. who him and his colleague ed dc um created what's called self-determination theory uh, which is mm. the most sophisticated robust rigorously assessed uh tested um you know, proven in the academic literature um, a model of human motivation that there is. And, and you know, we, we have a continuum of motivation. If you think on one end is a motivation where people are not motivated at all. And, and then there are a number of sub-elements of what's called extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivation would be, hey, you do this and I'll give you some money or or it's about um, somebody coercing. If you don't do this, I'm going to do something nasty to you. Or guilt is a great one. You know, people who, for weight loss, that's a, a great thing to get people started. Um, but then as you, you get into what's called self-determined ex, uh, extrinsic motivation, which is where you start to find your own reasons for things. And then the holy grail of motivation is intrinsic motivation where you do stuff for the enjoyment, the challenge and the mastery. Um, and and I'm, um, I'm quite lucky in that the, the area that I work in, I'm intrinsically motivated in it. I'm, I'm completely fascinated by it. I think wh- when I was a kid and when I was growing up, my heroes were kind of explorers. Um, and, and, you know, there's n- not much exploration to be done anymore uh, in terms, certainly in terms of the earth, all, a lot of the exploration, exploration left to be done is in, in science and, and also in understanding us and what makes us tick. Um, and so that, I think that, that intrinsic drive of being really genuinely interested um, in something, um, plus also um, the, the whole mastery process of, of, of getting better and better at it. And, and I think the thing about mastery that a lot of people don't understand is that, uh, or, or it's really, really useful when it's about the journey, not necessarily the destination. 
Um, when, when people are into something that self-mastery and they understand there is no finish, um, that's when the, there is that, that real intrinsic drive about continuous improvement. And, you know, the whole Japanese, um, oh, two terms from, 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 uh, from the Japanese language, um, one is Kaizen, those little small bits of continuous improvement. And, and the other one um, is Ikigai. And I think Ikigai kind of sums up um, a lot of why I'm kind of motivated in this area. So it, it, the Japanese say it's you have Ikigai when there's a, a an interconnectedness between something that you love, um, something that the world needs, something you can get paid for, and something that you're good at. And when all four of those interact, um, then you have Ikigai. So, so for me, I could just sum that all up and say, I have Ikigai. <laughs> that, that would have been a sufficient answer, but I give you the long-winded version of getting to Ikigai. No, I appreciate it because I think it kind of needs to be broken down like that. I mean, I, I'm really interested in the whole motivation uh, system part of thing and routine also specifically because I, I guess a practical example I'm thinking of is somebody who doesn't necessarily like or want to exercise Versus mm. someone you meet like Lisa Tamati, who is so uh, massively self-motivated and mm -hmm. is driven to exercise. And there's, I guess there's levels to that game. You start at the base level. I guess the, the obvious question people would probably ask themselves is, you know, how do I go from being someone who doesn't want to go for a run a week to the point mm -hmm. where I've got a, like a routine where I'm at least busting out a couple of jogs a week. And I know I'm getting enough done to have ticked that health box, you know, those 40 minutes a week of, of running. I guess what I've kind of found is people find it tricky to shift into that first gear and then checking into shifting into other gears. Once you've got that momentum can happen, but why, why do we have such kind of the brakes on so hard to get into first gear with, with stuff that we perceive as, as being difficult for us sometimes. Yeah. Look, that, that whole statement and question is a, is a real rabbit hole. There are so <laughs> many things that, that go into it. Right. Um, some of it has got to do with your upbringing. Right. And, and, you know, when people do stuff, do sport or something that they're good at, it helps to build their self-esteem which then drives motivation and drives intrinsic motivation. Uh, there, there can also be, you know, where, how you were coached um, whenever you were younger. Uh, mm. If your parents were pressuring you to win or giving you signs of, of, of approval, either outward approval or, or, or just stuffed subtleties that you pick up. Um, you know, if it was all about the outcome, that can really destroy people's intrinsic motivation. Right. So the, there's stuff that goes on early. And even if we wind the clock back further than that, in the moment of conception, there are influencing factors. So, for instance, when we're talking about exercise, um, there's a gene called the BDNF or, or well, it's a, it's a protein, but there's a gene that encodes for, for BDNF. And the, we now know that there's different variants of that gene and that, that some people who have one variant of the gene, they actually um, can quite enjoy intense exercise and the feelings and emotions that come after exercise. And other people with another variant actually really don't like 
um, the physical discomfort and they have an aversion to the physical discomfort, right? So, so that's wow. one thing in terms of genetics. Then some of it is about how your brain is wired and, you know, those uh, systems, motivational systems that I talked about earlier on. Some of that's genetic and some of that is, is a learned response to your early environment, right? So that, there are a number of complexities. But then, so let's fast forward now, because if you know, people are in their 30s or 40s or 50s or 20s even listening to this podcast, they might go, yeah, well, that's very interesting. But what use is that to me now, right? <laughs> if, if that's already in the past. So if we're talking about then giving practical advice to people, I will always say to say say to people that that particularly if they um, have a long way to go, is that understanding that that these goals. Some people are very goal driven. For some people, it can be um, a demotivator. Like if somebody's listening to this who's really out of shape and wants to get in shape, the distance between where they are now and where they want to be is huge. And if they can't see a very clear way to bridge that gap, that actual goal of I want to be in great shape can actually stop them from getting started because they can't see a path, right? So I always say to people that, that particularly people who aren't massively um, goal-driven, and we've already discussed that there are people who are very goal-driven, people who aren't, right? So if you're not particularly goal-driven, especially around exercise, I said to people, right, well, what's your goal? And if it's longer than three months away, I said, well, write that down somewhere and forget about it. What's your goal in the next three months, right? And, and you know, it's all the basics, that the SMART goal, specific, measurable, um, achievable, um, relevant to you and time-based. Some people say realistic, but I think that's the same as achievable, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I like smarter goals. Um, you've got to evaluate your progress as you go. And then um, there's got to be little rewards, right? And those rewards don't have to be extrinsic and um, it can be just like yes i've achieved that that's bloody awesome right and um, so starting off with short-term stuff what's your three-month goal then break it down what's the goal in the next month then what's my goal this week right it's going to be measurable and then okay what is the process that i need to do process beats outcome every day of the week Right. And I then get people and you know, it's part of that coaching to say, okay, so in order to achieve that this week, what are some of the behaviors that you need to do? Right. So the listeners thinking about, well, what that might that be? And then I get people to write them down on what I call a ritual board. Um, so think of what a ritual is, something you do it ritualistically. And, and so we all have ritual boards in our house. Uh, and and you have a number of rituals. So one might be, um, you know, I'm going to go for a run. Another one might be, I'm going to go to the gym a couple of times. But then I really encourage people to have very small rituals that every time you see that board, you can take it off. So I'm going to do 10 squats. I'm going to sprint on the spot for 20 seconds, right? Because the key thing that a lot of people don't understand, and I'm getting to the crux of it, motivation follows action not the other way around, right? That's the key thing. A lot of people just sit and they wait for the motivation fairy to come along and give them a big dollop of motivation and the bloody fairy does not exist, right? (laughs) It's when you do that action and you tick it off and you give your brain feedback, 
that, yes, I've just done something that's making a difference, it actually drives motivation in the brain, right? So um, dopamine is really associated with pleasure, but it's actually the chemical of motivation and goal-directed behavior. It's about what's next. And that becomes activated by things like food, water, sex, nurturing, and achievement. So when you achieve something and you write it down and you tick it off, um, there's that little flood of dopamine that say that felt good, do it again, right? It's Dopamine is the chemical of more. So you've got to be achieving lots of little mini goals and that builds what psychologists call your self-efficacy, the belief that what I'm doing is making a difference, right? So you're, you're breaking that down. If just to recap, what's the process? Then you're ticking off your weekly ones. And, you know, if you miss a weekly one, that's okay. That's why I'm a big fan of Sunday. Give yourself a score out of 10 every Sunday. And then if it's been a shithouse week, you go, you know what? That was a three. But how do I get better than that next week? And if you had an eight, nine, or 10, you go, awesome. What do I need to do to replicate that this week, right? So it's about having a system, shining a light on it. You know, if you think of your systems that you have for people to be more productive, a lot of it will be measurement, right? What gets measured gets managed. So when you're actually measuring something, it's called the Hawthorne effect, and it, it improves 20% straight out of the gate, right? So that measurement feedback thing, is really, really important. And, and, and I think for if when we're talking specifically around exercise, people need to know that the effort is worthwhile. So that's why I'm a big fan on you need an independent, repeatable measure of your fitness, whether that is a distance that you run, that's a kilometer, two kilometers, five kilometers, whatever, or something like a beep test, uh, something where you will be able to see in the data that I'm actually getting better because mm. that drives self-efficacy, the belief that what I'm doing is making a difference. And that is the biggest driver of long-term behavior change. Right. So without that kind of quantifiable positive Feedback outcome loop. or any outcome, you kind of mm. don't have a chance. If, you're, if your outcome is just, I'm going to run around the block, but yeah. you never add any that extra layer of an improvement that you want to track That's over right. time, yeah. then you can get stuck in this, oh, I ran around the block for 12 weeks and then I stopped running around the block. And I guess that's a big part of why that happens. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's right. And look, the other thing that I would say to people is that, you know, when you're undertaking an exercise program, that, that, that there's days when you, or anything, any behavior change, there's days you'll be highly, highly motivated and there's days when your motivation will be shit ice. On those days, just do something, right? You've got to do something. You've got to keep your head in the game. And another little thing, when people don't feel like exercise, right? We, we, we live a very feeling-centered life these days, um, is, okay, if you don't feel like exercise, that's fine, but you need to put your exercise gear on and you need to make it to the end of your driveway and then you make the decision as to whether you're going to go for your run. Right. Right. Yeah. I love that one. <clears throat> That's good. You kind of force yourself onto the hamster wheel. Like I'm already on it. Nine tenths exactly. of the problem. It's going to be more of a hassle to go and get changed than just to run this bloody thing. I yeah. Think. And it's just a, <laughs> and have that as a rule, right? So the yeah. rule is 
if I'm scheduling a, an exercise, even if I don't want to, I need to get changed in my exercise gear and get out of the bloody house, right? And I always mm. say to people, a, a big one, when you come home from work, and it's not so relevant now that lots of people are working from home, but <laughs> so, so for instance, you're working from home today. So my advice would be when you finish the working day, get changed into your exercise gear. Because lots of people, when they come home from work, they get changed into their pajamas. When I'm doing corporate workshops, the amount of people who go, <laughs> I get changed into my pajamas, or at least you're in your comfy clothes. Think about the priming for your brain. When you get changed yeah. into your comfy clothes, you are subconsciously priming your brain to say, sit on your arse and drink a beer or a glass of wine. Whereas when you get into your exercise gear, you're subconsciously priming your brain to be more active. And, and sometimes mm. um, you will actually be noticeably more active, but you'll actually have more energy. And then you can add on, okay, I'm going to get into my exercise gear and I'm going to do 20 squats. And often that's enough for people just to shift their energy state from, I've come from Mark, oh, bloody hell, I'm lethargic. And the priming is we do our routine behavior of sitting on our arse and watching TV or drinking beer or whatever it may be. Uh, and, and we just need to shift that a little bit um, and, and have that subconscious priming that, okay, I'm ready for a little bit more movement. I like it. That's really interesting. I can see with, with the, the temporary death of the business suit, I'm sure people are kind of finding things who've been in the corporate life for so long have found potentially this transition to more casual wear has probably been inhibited yeah. to them in some ways in a professional context. Cause a lot of that's the war paint, right? That's the business war paint yeah, putting yeah, on the yeah. suit, having the triple latte going into work in the work mindset, you wake up and you're feeding the kids and there's a baby next door crying. It's a little bit harder to switch into that. The modern day, mm. like I guess, workplace. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. The brain is, is largely, you know, heavily influenced by context and different primes um, that are that are around us. So tell me this, Paul. So I've I've recently taken on the the role as coaching my niece's under eleven girls uh, basketball team. Yeah, good so luck with that. This, has been, <laughs> this, is, this is testing myself in new ways. You know, I like to always kind of explore the potential, and I thought this would be a good way to do it this winter. How do I not scar these kids for life after you just told me before that potentially I could be pre-programming them for failure and not wanting to exercise in life? So what, what are kind of the big don'ts as a coach? Well, uh, so the big don'ts are don't focus on outcome, right? Um, focus on the process. And particularly for 11-year-olds, they, they need to enjoy it. Right. And, and, and I coached my, my son's soccer team a couple of years ago, me, me and another, uh, a friend of mine coached it. And we were very big on, we need to make sure they're having fun uh, and they're highly motivated. And, and, you know, when we're giving the prep talk and the halftime talk and, and, and the, the end talk, it's, it's really about focusing on the process. Uh, and when you're praising, not necessarily praising people for outcome, i.e. for goals, but praising people for effort. Right. Uh, and yeah, particularly cool. for those who aren't skilled is is really praise them for the effort and the dedication. 
um, because then people are going to put in more effort and more dedication. So you've got to be real positive energy, making sure that they're having fun and, um, you know, giving them a little bit of a prep pep talk beforehand, making sure that training is fun as well as skill based. And they're having a little bit of a laugh as well as learning skills. Uh, and, and then just saying, hey, let's just go out there and express ourselves. Let's go out there and support each other. And when you're losing, OK, well, let's just let's see what our character's like. Right. Can we keep digging in can we make this half better than the first half and then at the end of it really singling out the process stuff that that you liked whether it was the effort you put in that there was one kid who just kept going even when they're being hammered god they should be there should be lavish praise on that kid for the <laughs> fact that their character and that they kept going because people will start to then um, do those actual behaviors yeah, great. That's that's really timely because I was thinking about the, the game that was played on the weekend uh, and this team that I'm coaching had previously had pretty, I think their last total score for the season previously was six points for the season. So pretty mm. low bar we're going yeah, from there. Yeah. And this week or the week past, they scored eight points and all, this is the first time coaching them, all the coaching I'd done to this point was just talking about teamwork and how yeah. we need to know, you know, hang out with each other, know each other's names, pass the ball to each other and have fun. And I guess I can already see case in point how the points, the scores will come from a team kind of trusting each other and just having fun and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Think- and and saying to them, you know, you know, why do you think that we scored eight points, right? Mm. And, 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 and really giving giving social approval to those who are talking about oh because we're working hard because we're working as a team that sort of stuff right and um, right. getting get that uh, one of the key things is being a coach as you know is getting people to tell you what you want to tell them because yeah, sure. we believe the stuff that comes out of our own mouth right and that's one <laughs> of the key things in coaching I love it. Now, you, you've been involved uh, yourself, but also your whole family, well, a large part of your family, Paul, in karate. Is that correct? Mm. Yeah, 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 we have. So what's, what, was the, uh, what was the impetus to get involved in, in combat sports and, and are they good for kids? So, look, the impetus, the impetus to get involved was um, I grew up in Belfast in the 1970s. I'm from a mixed marriage, which has a different connotation than everywhere else in the world. So my mom was a Protestant. My dad was a Catholic. They married in the 60s and it was massively taboo. Um, you know, back in those days, um, the, the, the country was divided and neighborhoods were divided. There was Catholic and Protestant neighborhoods. Some of them, they had massive, um, you know, 20, 30 foot um Um, fences between them they were called the peace lines but they were essentially big massive corrugated iron fences but we were brought up as catholics but we always lived in protestant neighborhoods um, because my parents didn't want us to be bigoted so when you go to school in the 1970s in belfast and to to uh, wearing a catholic uniform through a protestant neighborhood it's reasonably resilience building right and and now i you know that, that i fast forward um um, my kids are being brought up in a bubble within a bubble within a bubble. And what I mean by mm-hmm. that is this is a bubble country. Anybody who thinks that Australia is representative of the rest of the world needs their head looked at, right? It is an absolute bubble. I mean that in the best sense of the word. And, and it's mm-hmm. amazing. However, it's a bubble. 
And and I live in the Mornington Peninsula in a little village called Mount Eliza, which is a bubble mm, within gorgeous. a bubble, right? Gorgeous. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, and then my kids go to these awesome schools with really cool teachers, and they're brought up in a bubble within a bubble within a bubble. And and there's my concern as a parent is how do you bring up resilient kids in a bubble within a bubble within a bubble? Because if there's anything I know about resilience, having researched it for the last 10 years, is that a large component of it has to be earned, right? Um, and so I talked to my wife and she vetoed my first suggestion, which is to take them through Kitty version of combat survival and resistance to interrogation training that I went through in the forces. She went, that ain't happening. So we, we actually, we, we discussed it and, and we, we actually said, well, a big thing can be sport. So we, we sat our kids down. They were five and nine and said, okay, guys, house rules. You need to do a team sport and a martial art. You choose whatever you want. Doesn't matter. Let, let's go and try some, see which ones you like, and, and we'll support you in whatever ones you like. Um, but the rules are you need to do a team sport and a martial art. And, and when you stop, you need to pack your bags and find somewhere else to live, right? Oh, they're wow, just, non-negotiable. They're the, they're, the, they're the rules, right? So they both just happened to gravitate towards um, soccer and karate. And it was actually my little guy who started doing karate first at four. He was only four years. He hadn't even turned five. Uh, and it had a big impact on him, uh, you know, just going into the tatami and having sensei. And I just love it because so much of it is about respect. And he was so respectful. And all the way through, his teachers have said he's been the, the most respectful student, right? That I think when you get them young and, and that whole, I love the whole martial arts thing about respect. Um, the belt process is, is, is very engaging, um, in terms of uh, that them them sticking to it, and then that you know they just started competing. Uh, and there's two types of competition. There's there's kata, and there's kumite, and, and kata is when they're sort of doing all the all the moves. Um, I think my my little girl Kira at one stage referred to it as angry dancing, <laughs> and, and then and kumite is combat. Uh, and and look, a lot of people misunderstand when you say oh my god your kids are doing combat that's ridiculous well <laughs> look first of all um particularly for the young kids um it, it's it's very little it's minimal contact right um particularly to the head you're not allowed any contact you've got to just miss it's all about control um and you're allowed to, so they to, to are they tapping and it's kind of like tap yeah they tap? can just tap or or mm. miss by about an inch or a couple of inches and look, as they get a bit older, that tap can be a bit harder. And, and you know, body kicks, you can hit hard to the body, that sort of stuff. But uh, there is, and, and that whole process, and particularly when they go to squad training and, and their, their dojo that they're at is, is um, probably the best dojo in Australia in terms of the, the, the combat and the athletes. And so it's full on because they've got a lot of kids who are very good around their age groups in that dojo. And, and it's pretty taxing. And there were times when they're going into squad and particularly when Oscar, when he was the youngest, that, that, that he, he didn't want to go. And we had to coach him about overcoming his fears and then, you know, giving him positive reinforcement, when he did and you know we're very proud of you for this and 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 we've been just mindful of you know when they go and do tournaments and particularly if they're winning medals 
um, you've got to balance that whole thing out that it's not about the medals. It's actually about going and competing and it's about um, doing your techniques. And And the guy, and I forget his name because I'm I'm not that well-versed in karate, although I, I do it now, but the guy who who started Shotokan Karate, he, he said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, karate is not about winning or losing, but about the perfection of the character of its participants. Right, mm-hmm. which I I just love that, and and it uh, yeah. there there are the martial arts that are similar, but I think martial arts for a kid, um, around that discipline, around that focus, around that grit to achieve long term mm-hmm. goals, because it takes a long time to get a black belt, right, uh, and you know coming back, getting beaten, coming back, putting in effort, putting in effort, um, I think it's priceless, and, and it teaches kids. Um, a lot of life skills through sport. And then I think the, um, the, the team sport um, brings other things to that, you know, that, that you, you're interacting with the team. You've got to, you've, you've got to build relationships with people. Some people don't perform, some people do all of those things, but I like both of them in that the team stuff, most people get, but then the, the martial art, the discipline, but also the competing in the martial arts um, it's just about you and it's just about mm. your performance and that self-awareness and, and that, self-reliance. Absolutely. That self-reliance and dealing with failure, dealing with disappointment and pressure. Yeah. When you go to the nationals, you know, these kids are, are, are competing or we were just at the Australian open championships last week. And there's so many people there and there's such a buzz but you got little kids going onto the bat, the mat doing combat. Like that's different gravy than doing team sports, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, and yeah, we go absolutely. as parents as watch, and I, you know, because I played soccer all my life, I get very emotionally invested in it, but not as mad as some parents. But it's nowhere <clears> near <throat> the emotional investment in when you watch your kid doing combat, right? And 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 again, as I say, the contact isn't bad but it is just something about the combat and there's judges and, you know, there's poor decisions and all of this sort of stuff. My God, it's a cauldron, right? Tense. It sounds tense. It's intense. Like I can just imagine combat. (laughs) Like, yeah, I can imagine this. Like I've seen it at basketball matches. So I can only imagine in a combat environment, especially with, for the for the participants, I mean, knowing that all eyes are on you at that age is is such a character building thing. Uh, yeah, but I can sure. imagine the stressed parents and probably things bubbling over a little bit from time to time. <laughs> yeah, and the tech the techniques that are are can be quite complicated, and then trying to to translate that from the dojo onto the mat, and then when you've got an opponent, right. And, yeah. and so for me, things like karate or other martial arts, tennis as well, boxing, where there is one V one, right. And, and, and very little influence from anybody else at that point, that is a different level of intensity. And that's where the mindset stuff comes in really, really powerfully, right. Anything that's mm. solo or one V one, and um, that, that mindset um, really becomes critical, particularly when there's, there's stress and there's pressure involved in it. And, and so I've really enjoyed, both of, uh, both of us have really enjoyed the journey of watching our kids grow from a, a perspective of being able to handle pressure. 
and actually seeing how it translates into their overall life. And my little girl who, um, you know, she, she's got a baking business now and, and uh, she, she's baking her cakes and baking amazing cakes. And sometimes there's a lot of pressure. And, you know, in exams, I remember somebody asked her, are you nervous about the exam? And she looked at him and said, why would I be nervous? Nobody's trying to punch me in the face or kick me in the head. <laughs> and I'm like, that's pretty cool. That right? is correct. <laughs> yes. You, you you coached your daughter through a bit of an injury a little while back, Paul. I, I watched a video about this, uh, maybe talking about her breaking her arm and, and the sort of mental processes she went through to deal with that. Could you kind of talk us through that one? Yeah, so so she broke her arm in a turn. It has to be saying it's not it's not that violent. She broke her arm, but but she'd actually slept. I'm not going to think, but fall. she ended up, she landed on her arm yeah. and she snapped her arm. She she snapped one of the bones and cracked the, the sort other of injury bone. that could happen just as easily in basketball as it could in a combat ba- sport. Basketball, soccer, skate or particularly anything with a, a hardish um skateboards, right? That sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. um so that got snapped and then um you know she's screaming and I jumped onto the mat as, as you do and she's screaming about her arm and I could see it. And I'm thinking, Oh, this is not good. Oh. Right. Oh. And, and I, I, when I went through helicopter search and rescue, I had done initial emergency care training. So I'm like kind of semi-trained paramedic, but that, that was nearly 20 years ago. But I remember it's just something that kicked into my head that went the most important thing that you need to do right now, your biggest job is to help her to be calm. So I just said to her, I said, Kira, I'm pretty sure your arm is broken but it's going to be okay. What you now need to do is breathe, right? And and I had taught my kids some breathing techniques for dealing with the um, anxiety slash arousal of getting onto the mat competing. So they're familiar with box breathing and a couple of other techniques. So, uh, and it took about a minute just to calm her down enough to get a breath because, you know, she's screaming and I'm, the, you know, it's just that voice of, it's going to be okay. We need to breathe. You need to breathe. You need to just slow down. And she slow down. She started doing the breathing. Uh, and then the paramedics come over, but those guys are, are kind of volunteers and they, they, they don't have any pain killing stuff with them. And they said, Oh, I think we need to get an ambulance. And, and they phoned for an ambulance, you know, that got passed to me, you know, cause they had to ask some questions. And then they said, look, it's going to be probably 45 minutes to an hour before we can get an ambulance there. Yeah. Uh, so I spoke to the paramedic and said, we just need to take it to our hospital. And they said, um, you're going to, we're going to need to splint that arm before you move. So we had to take the, the glove off Kira and, and Kira, I remember she looked at me and she said, dad, this is going to hurt, isn't it? And I said, yep, that's going to hurt. Uh, and she, she looked at me and she said, um, okay, I need to find Shaka. So Shaka is her. I had done this stuff with my kids where, you know, we have um, these two voices, opposing voices in our head. You've got your inner gremlin. That's the sort of negative one. And then you've got your inner warrior or your inner sage. Uh, and so my kids had created them, done the drawings and everything of it. And Kira's one was, was Shaka. That's her inner warrior. And it's a Zulu word for female warrior. And she'd actually looked it up. And she's the one who said to me, daddy, I need to find Shaka. And I think she was nine or 10 years old at the time. She went 10, uh, yeah, 10 years old, I think. And so she just closed her eyes and visualized Shaka and that, that inner warrior. 
uh, and just breathe through the process. Uh, and they got the glove off, got the splint on, and I took her to the hospital. You know, you're waiting in line to get seen. Okay, that's what it is. When she eaten, she'd had something of an hour before. She said, "Okay, we can't give her a pain. We can't give her anything uh, until the doctors come and seen her." So it was probably an hour and a half to two hours before she had any painkiller. And after the first two or three minutes, um, she just didn't cry. And and when we saw the X-ray, um, Oscar was with me at the time. He looked at the x-ray, the doctor showed him. Doctor didn't even need to tell him. Oscar's maybe seven years old. And he'd look at it and he went, Oh my God. And he looked at it and he looked over at Kira and he went, Kira, you are so cool. Because <laughs> she had just managed herself through that process, right? Which uh, you don't often get little seven-year-old boys telling their 10 or 11 year old sister that they're <laughs> so cool, right? That's so amazing that that she was able to coach herself through mm. something like that we had given her these tools and she understood them well enough to apply them in what can be for anyone some one of the greatest um emotional drains and and stress creating environments we ever have to deal with which is significant physical pain yeah she could still think logically through that and go through that sequence and that process as you said before she had the process in her mind that's, that's just amazing. I'd like to know kind of just in broad terms, uh, what's going on when we're under stress? Like I've felt it. I've certainly felt it in Muay Thai sparring, mm. you know, against yep. an opponent who you know is uh, technically better Very than skilled. you and yep. you're under pressure and you're like, I'm Muay Thai, a big large part of it's about relaxing. So you're like, I'm relaxed, I'm relaxed, I'm relaxed. And then all of a sudden you are not relaxed because you're like, hang on, I'm getting hurt. So What's going on there from a mind, body, brain perspective? What, what's actually happening to us, which gives us, you know, this, this higher breathing and this, and we're tensing up and suddenly yeah. our shell, we're gassing out quickly when all mm. of a sudden we were fresh. What, what's happening? Yeah. So, so it's all to do with over arousal really. Right. So there, there's a, and, and it's been long recognized by physiologists um, for a number of decades, the, the performance arousal curve, right. And it's this kind of um, sort of a half circle, if you like, almost a half circle, if you think performance on one axis and arousal on the other, in that when you're arousal, and when we say arousal, us physiologists mean stress, right? Stress slash arousal. When that's low- a Stress response. You were, stress, stress yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the whole, we, we call that arousal in, in, of the autonomic nervous system, right? So when you got low stress, you got low arousal. When you're high stress, it's high arousal. Um, so when arousal is low, your performance is pretty low, right? So if right now you had to do some performance, whether it's Muay Thai or something else, without warming up and psyching yourself up and all of that, your performance would be, we, it would be quite low. Uh, and if you, you can apply this to anywhere, if you're doing a job that is boring as batshit, your arousal is low, your performance is going to be quite poor. So most people get that. And then as arousal increases, your performance increases because areas of your brain start to get interested and your autonomic nervous system starts to switch on. So there's two branches of your autonomic nervous system. And it's a little bit like a seesaw, right? I'm going to simplify things for people. Um, so one part is your sympathetic nervous system branch, and the other is the parasympathetic. Now, the sympathetic is pretty badly named because it's not sympathetic at all. That's the part that drives the stress response. Uh, and so it is to do with an area in your brain called your amygdala. So that is the part of your brain. You got one in each hemisphere, 
and it processes emotions and particularly to do with fear, right? Um, fear and stress. And basically when your amygdala becomes significantly activated, when it perceives something to be a threat, whether it's real or imaginary, right? And, and this is the key thing for people to understand. This can be you about to do a Muay Thai fight or someone sitting thinking about what something bad that might happen next week or uh, you know whether they're going to lose their job, what someone's thinking about them. You can create the exact same stress response um, in your brain from those two different situations. One is very real and the other one um, is imaginary and future um, and dependent on so many variables. The physical manifestation will be the same. Exactly the same. This is what most people don't get. So I'll, I'll look, I'll, I'll, let me take a step back. Our brains are pretty amazing things, right? We, we could now have a, a deep philosophical debate about God, religion, all of this sort of stuff. You know, what, what happens when we die? That's pretty high level brain function. We could also have a conversation about metacognition which is the fact that you can think about the fact that you can think about stuff, right? Think about that for a second. That's high level brain function. But this amazing brain of ours has a double-edged sword. It turns out that we are the only species whose thoughts can activate the stress response system. So that means that you can sit here wow. and you, I could get you now to think about some bad shit that happened to you 20 years ago. And if you really started thinking about that deeply, you would have a stress response as if you're being chased by a lion or you could, or think about something bad that might happen, right? The, mm. the physiological response that we have is the same. The amygdala sets off these alarm bells and our autonomic nervous system responds the fight or flight or freeze, actually. So a lot of people talk about fight or flight, but it's fight, flight or freeze. And you see some people, they freeze with fear in challenging situations. They just freeze and they don't do anything, right? Um, so that's part of the fight, flight, freeze mechanism. And, and what happens is that sympathetic nervous system, um, it stimulates your nervous system. Adrenaline is released um, from your adrenal cortex uh, sorry, from your adrenal medulla is part of the adrenal glands. Um, noradrenaline is released. And if there's enough stress, um, cortisol is also released, right? And, and what they do is they, they mobilize systems in your body um, to help you respond to the threat. So your heartbeat gets faster, your blood pressure goes up, right? Your breathing gets faster and shallower. All the blood that's in your digestive system digesting food is shunted away to the muscles to enable you to fight or to run away, right? And um, your reproductive system's temporarily switched off, as is your immune system. And there's no point ovulating or creating sperm if you're being chased by a lion, right? It's a waste of energy. Sure. So you think this is all to, 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 it's emergency and it's just all hands on deck. And so if we think about the long term consequences briefly, um, people who are chronically stressed, their fertility becomes impacted, right? Um, their immune system um, starts to shut down. They start to get more sickness, more illnesses. They can develop heart issues. They develop blood pressure issues. Um, all of these things come from chronic overactivation of this, what's supposed to be an emergency system. So that's what's happening in our body is that response to a perceived threat, right? And if... Um, either we're not 
well versed in this because this is a system that you can train with military people, combat people, you know, they're training this system, but people who aren't, 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 aren't very well used to that. Um, and actually everybody's got a level of arousal that is too much where it becomes completely overwhelming. Uh, and what happens then is that, that your amygdala hijacks your brain. So the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio showed in his lab that, that at a certain threshold, your amygdala actually secretes chemicals out that block your rational thoughts. Basically, it says to your prefrontal cortex, that's the rational thinking, planning, judgment part of your brain, your amygdala says, talk to the hand, I'm in control of this brain, right? That's when people, wow. he called it amygdala hijack. I, I say it's losing your shit, right? So right. that's what happens. And people will have noticed it happened more in lockdown. Because what we know with chronic stress, your amygdala actually grows bigger and more sensitive. It hypertrophies, right? Um, so that, that, now the other thing to understand when we're talking about physical performance is over arousal impairs motor control. Your frontal lobes, the back part of your frontal lobe is the motor cortex that controls movement. And when the amygdala is over and it's shutting down that frontal lobe um, function, um, their actual motor control becomes impaired. This is why people will miss a penalty kick at the World Cup final of soccer or miss a kick in the grand final when they would be all over. They miss a, a, a pot that they would normally have in golf or serve a double fault at, at tennis. Over arousal impairs motor control. And, and you also have, you know, you have the physical stress and pressure and then you have the head game stuff. And so what I, I, I do mindset coaching for all the, the Karate Australia guys, and I'm saying it, it's that mindset stuff that can actually tip us over the edge. And particularly when we become outcome focused. So to bring it back to your Muay Thai thing, when you're thinking, oh, this guy punching me in the head, or I'm going to lose this fight, my family sitting here watching. When you start to focus on outcome, that impairs your performance as well, right? And it gets in your head and you're not dialed in you're not completely in sync uh, and then your motor stuff starts becoming purred so your actual performance drops and then your brain your brain then says do you see told you you were shit and it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy right that can all start from negative self-talk wow uh, that part about the amygdala actually like increasing in size with sustained chronic uh, stress. i guess yep. stress you're actually, you're feeding this thing. Like you're making mm. it stronger by being constantly stressed. Now, now you think about it. This is a beautiful adaptive response. If we're a hunter gatherer or if you're living in constant danger, right? Mm. We also know, let me, let me add one thing into this because it's important that um, if your mom was stressed in the third trimester, um, you are likely to be born with an enlarged amygdala, right? Now let's think about that. The stress hormones are actually get through the placenta. They get into that fetus's developing brain and actually signal um, um, for changes in gene expression that actually drive an enlarged hypersensitive amygdala. And that child will be born what we call hypervigilant, right? Mm -hmm. That means that they are non-consciously scanning the environment for danger and threat. So think about it. That is a beautiful adaptive response. Because mom is telling you when you're in the womb, 
be prepared. This is a dangerous world, right? And if you're born into a dangerous world, that is an, it's an awesome adaptive response. But if you're not born into a dangerous world and your mom was distressed for whatever reason it might may be, whether it's work, relationship issues, um, it's what we call maladaptive. So it's adapting, but in a way that's not helpful. And, and, and again, early life stress can enlarge the amygdala. Going through chronic workplace stress, we've seen recent studies where they do brain imaging scans, where they follow people um, for six months, a year, two years, ask them about the amount of stress in their lives. Those with significant chronic workplace stress, their amygdala grows bigger, their prefrontal cortex shrinks, and they have a then a less, dis, a less connected brain. They're less able to regulate their emotions, so they become more emotional. And, and, and it's similar brain changes that we see in anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Wow. <laughs> so it's the so it, system responding to inputs. And, and it prioritizes survival. Survival mm-hmm. is prioritized over performance and, and, and over long-term health. Right. So this is why. And, and what also happens, just so the, the, the viewers get a really good understanding, from a nutrient perspective, then your body will cleave nutrients that are normally doing other things and actually bring them into the, the whole system that is creating stress hormones because it's prioritizing wow. survival. So it takes um, some, it's, it, that's crazy. it steals. It, it doesn't give a flying F about living <laughs> another 30, 40 years. So processes, uh, enzymes, um, cofactors, genes that are involved in longevity are compromised. Those, all of those nutrients are actually taken. So it's Bruce Ames. Um, he came up with this triage theory um, is that it's triaging is going danger is first survival is first. So I'm going to steal from everything for survival. And, and this is why those people who are chronically stressed end up nutrient depleted as well. Right. Wow. That's so crazy. I've never had really any sort of understanding at this level as to how much, or actually, I guess the, the, the actual proven effect of these things. I mean, I've, mm. I've been in high pressure business environments for a large portion of my life and seen multiple senior executives bow out with unexplainable health issues, yep, but burnout. there was never any real clear cut diagnosis as to what the cause was. Mm. Uh, and the only common thing that was there was that they were all hyper-stressed, right? And you can yeah. imagine that day in, day out, 12-hour days of, of trying to over-deliver and, and panic on things, it had to have been having a key a key factor in these things. But Yeah, and not, not, only, not only does it affect the brain, it affects the different organs of the body as well. And when there's chronic stress, it triggers inflammation at a cellular level. And it's the inflammation that drives chronic disease processes, right? So mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a complex neurosymphony that then um, creates widespread changes in biology that drive these disease states, whether they're physical or mental um, issues. For people listening in, Paul, who are feeling a bit of stress, and maybe you know part of it might be a career that doesn't necessarily agree with them or all sorts mm-hmm. of different reasons could be relationship stuff. What are kind of a couple of quick wins to, to help diffuse the situation a bit for people? Yeah. So the, there's, there's a few tools, um, a, a few in, in and of the moment. So breath work 
is is really really critical um because when your brain goes in, into amygdala hijack you need to regain control of your frontal lobes right and, and so doing either box breathing um which is where you breathe like the sides of a box you breathe in for four you hold for four you breathe out for four you hold for four repeating that or take a breath in for four out for six or something that's quite 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 new in the research from Stanford University is a physiological sigh, which is a double breath in and a slow breath out. So it's a, mm. that is one of the quickest ways to control your nervous system is that double breath in ideally through the nose and then a long breath out. Right. And then, um, it, it, there's some cognitive stuff that you do. So for me, the first thing is that physiology and use that breath work right? Then it's realizing that um, the, the, the Stoic philosophers, Epictetus said, it's not what happens that matters, but how we respond, right? And Viktor Frankl said that, that in between stimulus and response is the space where we get to choose how we react, right? So they were very aligned in this thinking. Uh, and, and that's a tool um, that from acceptance commitment therapy called the choice point. We all get to choose how we react to our circumstances. I like to then use a catastrophe scale, right? So you take that breath in and you go, okay, I got a choice here about how I react. And I like to go, okay, where is it on your catastrophe scale of not to 10? Um, because what happens is when you're stressed, you're highly stressed. And just think about it and have all the listeners think about it. Think about a time that you were stressed, that you had an amygdala hijack in the last couple of weeks, a couple of months where you flew off the handle, Right. At the time, it felt like it's a 7, 8, 9, or 10 out of 10, right? But um, my 9 out of 10 would be getting a phone call right now to say my wife and two little kids have just been killed in a car crash. Now, I know there's people on this call going, whoa, that's got to be a 10. I tell you, closer to a 10 would have been living in Syria three or four years ago um, and, and seeing ISIS come in, behead all of your family in front of your eyes, Jesus, yeah. burn down your village, kill all, all of your friends and drag you off and make you make you fight for them or they kill you. That's pretty bloody close to a 10 out of 10, right? So when we use that scale, most of us get stressed on the daily basis by the ones, twos, threes, and fours, right? Uh, and that flying off the handle that you had that was really stressful last week, most people are going, yeah, geez, it felt like a nine or 10 out of 10. No, it's probably a three or four, right? Sometimes it's, it's a lot higher, but... Just that catastrophe, the reason I love it is that they've shown in brain scanners when they do it on people, that the second you ask the question, where is this on my scale, pop, your frontal lobes come back online. Because uh, a comparison is a frontal lobe function. So you're actually, right. remember I talked about the seesaw, you're actually jumping on the side of your frontal lobes on the seesaw and you're actually switching it back on. Then you go, okay, it's not a 10, it's a five or six or a three or whatever it is. And then you get, and, and then you go, okay, what's within my control? So this is another tool from the Stoic philosophers. Epictetus said two and a half thousand years ago, um, there's two zones in your life, zone one and zone two. Zone one is the stuff that's within our control. Things like your belief systems, what you choose to be afraid of, your attitudes, your behaviors, and how you choose to react to your circumstances. He said, everything else is zone two, the past, the future, 
what people think about you, what they say about you. COVID-19, that would be zone two as well. And the key, Epictetus said, is that when you are challenged, is that we must focus on what we can control and refuse to invest our energy in that which we can't control. So I like just to recap, bringing those things together, do your breath work, whether it's a, an extended bit or just that physiological side, two breaths in one breath out. Um, then you're going, okay, I got a choice here. Where is this on my catastrophe scale? Actually, you could flip it around. You go breath work. Where's this in my catastrophe scale? Okay. It's a seven. I'm at a choice point now. What is zone one? What's zone two? I need to focus on the stuff that is within my control. So that's stuff that you can do in and of the moment. Other stuff that is more longer term is making sure that you're exercising regularly because it's so critical. I could talk for half an hour about why it's important. Making sure that your sleep hygiene is really good. If you're in times of stress or you know you're coming up for a stressful period, that's when your alcohol consumption needs to be minimal. And I'm Irish, I'm ex-military, I like a tipple, but that's when you got to control that. That's when you got to be religious about when your screens are turned off. You got to have that decompression, that half an hour before you go to bed where you do your breathing, your stretching, or you journal around stuff is that the brain needs time to decompress. And, you know, you do some more breath work whenever you get into bed and you're really helping yourself to recover effectively. Um, because if you don't recover, you know, if you have a crap night's sleep, you come home, you're stressed out, you have, you have some wine that turns into some more wine or you're not a drinker, but it's comfort food. Both of those we know disturb your sleep. Then you're going to wake up tired the next morning. We know that when you've had a disturbed night's sleep, your stress levels are higher. Your stress chemicals are actually, you're, you're um, already aroused. It's, it's impacting. So your ability to deal with stress is minimized. We know that ghrelin, your hunger hormone is higher. So you're going to crave food. And because cortisol is higher, you're craving sugary, fatty, and salty food. So you're more likely to eat shit food where if you've had a bad night's sleep. Leptin, another hormone in the brain, is reduced, and that governs voluntary physical activity. So after a crap night's sleep, you're more likely to sit on your arse all day long. You're much less likely to do a workout. Then you're less able to manage your stress because exercise is really good for that. Um, and then you come home, and you're stressed out, and you're more likely to drink alcohol or eat shit food again, and it's Groundhog Day, right? That's so good. <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy absolutely so it is it's yeah. about those tools in and of the moment but also how you're setting up your environment if you know you're going through a period of, of stress and the exercise the sleep hygiene the making sure your nutrition is good that is absolutely fundamental you know i just want your listeners to think about you know, they're, they're athletes going to the Olympics or to the Rugby World Cup or whatever it would pick your sport. They're going into a sustained event. What are they doing um, after they've mm. trained, right? How are they looking after themselves? I, I like to think of us, to, to get us to think of ourselves as, as executive athletes or corporate athletes. And maybe the last one I'll ask you, Paul, what, what is the, the Paul Taylor daily routine at the moment? Is it, is it ad hoc or have you kind of got your own setup that you go through? Yeah, look, I have to thank my wife for this is that um, that I've gotten into um, getting up and journaling because I'm doing less traveling. Oh. 
Um, so, so getting up and journaling, that was one thing that I wanted to do for quite a while, but just wasn't doing consistently. And I've been doing it consistently this year. Um, I, and also doing, I'm much better now at doing my rehab for my dodgy hip, right? I'm, I'm slated in for a replacement in September, but mm-hmm. I want to, I want to be playing soccer this season. I want to be doing my karate, going to the nationals with my kids again and creating memories. So I've got to do my rehab, right? So they're the things that I've been good at. And, and, and then I'm doing my work, which, which varies from giving presentations over zoom, being on the road or doing my PhD or, or just researching. Awesome. It feels like you're living a rich and interesting life, Paul. Uh, and thank you very much for being on the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Was there anything else you wanted to promote or anything like that? Uh, well, just my website, mindbodybrain.com.au. My Instagram is at mindbodybrainpi. Um, we are just over halfway through our first public program, my, myself and my wife, who is accredited in Japanese psychology and acceptance commitment therapy. So we're running a better you program uh, and we'll be advertising the next one um, over the next uh, coming weeks on both the website and on Instagram. So if anybody wants to be a better version of themselves, uh, we are now running corporate programs. Oh, sorry, individual programs. I said individual, I said corporate, individual, corporate. I've been running for years. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. For the latest Doing Epic Stuff happenings, you can join our newsletter on mailchimp.doingepicstuff.com forward slash subscribe. And for direct inquiries, catch me on mike at doingepicstuff.com. We out.